0: Welcome everyone. This is Massage Therapy Now. My name is Damien John, your host. Today I have two guests back from a previous podcast on intuition. We had such a good time together, we decided to do another topic. They are, <laughs> they are both educators, uh, RMTs, authors of their own educational materials. I will include all of those things in the show notes so that you can pursue them if you wish. My guests today are Pam Fitch and Kathy Ryan. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming again.
1: Thank you. Oh, thank you. We're, we're really excited about another installment of Two Old Gals and a Really Lovely Man Talk About Massage Therapy. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two gals and really lovely man. That could be the, the title of the podcast. I
2: like it. I like it.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, Kathy and Pam and I were talking about subjects to discuss and we came quickly to one or they actually came quickly to one that they both have discussed a lot amongst themselves and with others, and it has to do with the language we use as therapists with each other and with clients and in education, and how we speak to some of the things that we do, and whether or not the language matches what we're doing. Is that paraphrasing it well for both of you, or do you have anything to add to that description
1: of it? No, that that pretty much uh, nails it from my perspective.
3: Yeah, I think I, I think from my perspective, we're we're talking about the need for precision in language, and if we're going to make claims, we need to know what we're talking about. So that opens a whole Pandora's box about uh, how we describe the things that we learn and that we know about our work.
0: Yes, and so could I ask both of you to speak to this idea in your own words for a few moments, just to lay the framework of where you are in relationship. To it and why it's important to you individually? Maybe start with uh, Kathy.
1: Um, I think for me, uh, there's, you know, as Pam said, this can open a whole Pandora of what we're talking about. I think for me, there have been certain historical phrases that we've continued to use over the years, um, even though it doesn't, as Pam would say, precisely reflect or physiologically, let's say, reflect what we're actually doing with our hands. And my concern around the imprecision in language is that if we use a term to describe someone, something, and I'll give an example in a bit here, um, we will latch onto that and then use our hands in a way that replicates that. And we may be using our hands in ways that perhaps could, there could be risk involved for the patient so for me, it comes back to two things that really kind of drive what I what I do uh, as a clinician, as a writer, as an educator. Number one is upholding high standards in patient care, and that includes safety, you know, uh, in, in the work that we do. And the second would be about uh, doing all that I can do to contribute to honoring the credibility of what we do. So when we use imprecise language, I think
3: there's a potential to impact both of those things.
0: Right. And yourself, Pam?
3: Well, I I sense that we sometimes try to make things happen because we believe that they're true. Um, So what our hands are telling us is happening might be one thing, although palpation and perspective are not necessarily the same thing. So what we feel in our hands may not necessarily be the actual phenomenon that we're noticing. But when we notice something and we describe it, then quite often as massage therapists, we may use that description over and over again. I am so guilty of this. So well, I'm not talking about people, you know, out in the world who do this. This is a really common thing that massage therapists yes. do. Because, what we, you know, our, our work is so subjectively understood what my hands tell me is happening is going to be so uh, hard to prove under any circumstances. And in some ways, even as we're starting to get more evidence based in our approaches, I think there has to be some acknowledgement of the subjective nature of our work and that it's really hard to prove what we're doing. So that requires a real onus of responsibility on the therapist to be as precise as possible and to say that we don't know what we're feeling if we don't know what we're feeling
0: right can you say more about the subjective nature of our work and and dive into that a little bit well
3: sure well i mean if we're talking uh if if i'm trying to tell you what it is i feel when i put my hands on a client or a patient um i'm going to Describe the sensation from my hands. So that's looking at the or feeling from the outside into the patient's body, mm-hmm. right? Whereas there might be something else physiologically that's occurring. There may be a psychological overlay of 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 trust between the therapist and the patient that needs to be acknowledged and perhaps ref, um, connects with the the shift that I'm perceiving. And sometimes we can get, we can be vulnerable to believing that we personally, as therapists, have made a change in our clients' bodies, Mm -hmm. when in fact, there may be something else going on, a process that we're not even aware of. And so that's why I think it's really, really important for us to acknowledge what we don't know. Right. And and be, be as precise as possible. Yes. What do you think, Kathy?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think as we talked about um, in the last segment, I think it would be <clears throat> nearly impossible to really figure out exactly how our work works because there's so much going on on so many levels in concert that would be really mm-hmm. difficult. I think there's a there's a couple things for me that I, you know, in, in terms of language in reading research, have become very Blatantly obvious that that particular phrase is taking us down a road that isn't necessarily precise or correct. So I think I think there are some some things in in what we do where it's absolutely that's just not physiologically plausible <laughs> to right. happen. So why are we continuing to use this language? Uh-huh. But I agree with you. I think there's so much going on. Um, on so many levels that it would be very difficult to really get a clear um, one, two, three, four, five, six of exactly what's happening when we're when we're working with our patients.
3: and the, And the fact is our our students, and you know, I teach in a, a massage therapy program in Ontario and they're, my students want a black and white answer so they mm. want to know that when they put their hands in a certain position that X is going to happen or if it doesn't happen that Y is the reason mm-hmm. for that that's a completely reasonable expectation from a student perspective but I don't know any black and white <laughs> circumstances in our work I, I don't know
2: about you guys oh. but I don't
0: yeah. <laughs> well I think when you point out the subjective component of massage therapy and honoring it i haven't actually heard many people i don't think i've heard anybody say it in that way and i haven't heard many people state it in a way that uh, there's pushback from a number of massage therapists in the field around getting really really objective and it's there's there's two not two camps but you could say there's a few different camps in the world of manual therapy and sometimes it's called woo woo and sometimes it's called evidence based and and so there's this back and forth that happens but as you just stated in the the wording of honoring this objective space maybe we can honor all of it, and realize that we can never be totally, truly objective. I, I really like this thread; it, it, it's uh, making sense to me in, in a way that I haven't actually heard. It, it's very sensible. <laughs> it feels very sensible to talk about it that way.
3: Well, um, let me let me let's let's get concrete yeah. here. So let's think about an example. Right? There's been a lot of uh, conversation in the last few years about whether or not trigger points really exist. Yes. I've heard this from a bunch of different educators and some educators will say, "Oh, well, we don't we don't call them trigger points anymore." Oh, okay. All right. So, for almost 35 years I've worked as a as a practitioner and there are times when my hands encounter a taut band in the soft tissue and it seems like if I hold the the taut band either with light pressure or deep pressure, it's all kind of a personal decision. Again, that's subjective authority, mm-hmm. right? If I hold the spot, then I can feel, I can palpate, I can sense that taut point just melting under my fingers. Yes. So, so, So there's an example where we could say, does it actually melt? Well, no, actually, it's the sensation of melting. If you're holding an ice cube in your hand, putting pressure on it, you can feel the ice cube go from ice to water, and the and the ice cube actually gets smaller. So that's the sensation we're describing. But if I get too wrapped up in whether or not trigger points exist, then I lose the thread of the fact that what is effective in that moment, it's that I that I wait, that I pay attention to a sensation in a client's body, which is drawing my awareness. I pay attention, I hold it, I watch for a change, and when I feel the change, the client reports that something has shifted. Does this prove that trigger points exist or don't exist? No, it's about language. This is all about language. It doesn't change that what I've done may be facilitating improvement that the client feels better. You know, I'm not even denying that, but the language is where a lot of people get hung up. And if we could just talk about the phenomena and roll those around in our brains a little bit, then I think we'd get a little clearer on what our our purpose is. Because I can't divorce the fact that by holding a specific point on a client's body, in a quiet way where I'm paying attention, uh, you know, it may be just the holding the spot that is supporting the or facilitating the change. Or is it the pressure of my phone? I think that's pretty hard to determine. And I don't think that, it, that research exists to prove one way or the other. So from my perspective, what got me to buy into this topic today was that, when people become too attached to certain words or certain phrases or attitudes or beliefs, then they're losing the opportunity to open their eyes to what else may be going on in a certain circumstance. So what may appear mysterious, it's actually not, it might still be mysterious, but you know, there may be some fairly interesting and straightforward ways of describing changes that we feel with our hands.
0: Yes. And since we're talking about the language of things, because language has come up for me a lot in my life and the, the precise nature of it or, or the imprecise nature of it and the languaging of even when you're in conflict with a person, the ability for us to mm-hmm. understand what the other person is saying is really we're, we're, we're not good at conveying information and we're not good at processing it or hearing it or knowing what the person is saying behind the language necessarily and so it becomes really really important as a therapist i think to convey as best we can within the language that we use what is showing up so what in both of yours opinion is an unethical use of language and how do we reflect on that and make it better Maybe some examples that you've come across yourself, and how it it has harmed clients, or or has it harmed clients? Can you guys speak to that idea?
1: Oh, I would love to. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd like I'd love to go off on one of uh, one of my classic rants here, if if that's okay yes. for a moment. Rant.
3: <clears throat> It's never stopped
1: you before, Kathy. No, this is true. This is true. As as Pam Pam well knows, because uh, this has been one of my rants in her presence, uh, one of the phrases that just drives me to distraction is the term breaking up or down scar tissue. Mm. Um, And this is, you know, uh, which is, you know, kind of one of my practice focuses is is working with scar tissue and also the topic of the book that I co-authored. So in taking the deep dive into wound healing and really looking at, you know, if I'm working with a scar, what actually am I doing? And <clears throat> talking in terms of mature scars, something that's already been formed and it's been there for a while. You know, and that breaking up down scar tissue is one of those phrases that has been around in our profession since the dawn of time. And my my issue with that phrase is that when we hear the word "breaking up" or "down," it has a particular implication with regard to how one might use their hands. In particular, it would imply that we need to be somewhat assertive or aggressive with the tissue to try to break it, break it up. Um, and in doing the deep dive into wound healing and, and scar tissue, uh, you know, the remodeling and what we end up with that scar tissue, um, essentially, we're talking about collagen, we're talking about fibrotic collagen and collagen has a tensile strength of steel, not really something that we can break manually with our hands, nor is it something that um, really would be patient considerate to try to, to break this stuff up. Mm-hmm. But we do, but we do facilitate change. you know I've worked with scar tissue a lot over the course of my career and much like Pam talked about with a trigger point or whatever we want to call it these days. When I work with this tissue in a particular way, I can feel the change. I can palpate a change, and then of course the patient mm-hmm. uh, reiterates back to what they're they're feeling something that is different. Um, you know, as that work is being done, and at the conclusion, I'll often incorporate movement. So I have them do movement, pay attention to what they feel when they do the movement. We do a, a bit of work, and then they do movement again, and say, "Oh, this has changed. I don't feel this or that," and we feel that palpable change. So my concern about using that word breaking is it does drive the way we use our hands. And what I've discovered in in sort of diving into the science and the way that I use my hands is that we don't have to be really aggressive with this tissue to facilitate a change. And therefore it becomes less risky for the patient, more comfortable for the patient. I work a lot with oncology uh, patients as well, particularly patients who have had mastectomy when there have been lymph node removal, and working really aggressively with the tissue puts them at a higher risk for secondary lymphedema. So say a client comes in with axillary cording or webbing, which is fibrosis of the lymphatic chain um, in the axillary region. If I want to use like a frictioning or a, or a really heavy or aggressive technique, they're at a much higher risk for lymphedema.
2: Right.
1: So if we mm-hmm. can facilitate change by using our hands in a, in a softer, less aggressive way, um to me, that's really important in terms of safe ethical, effective patient care. so that's my classic example of why we need to change some of our language
0: yes and yourself Pam
3: well that uh, kathy, that's a perfect um non rant uh. <laughs> <laughs> I tried
1: to I tried to rein it in. <laughs>
3: No, but that's that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. So you were using precise language about the fibrosis of the lymphatic chain, for example. That makes sense to me. And I think that would make sense across professions. But if we talk to other professions, especially, or we talk to clients and we talk about breaking down scar tissue, well, then they have an impression, as you say, of... A, a much more um, direct and uh, aggressive breaking down of something that is is, is uh, stuck, unbreakable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but the change is palpable when you do the kind of scar work that you're doing, and okay. and I've had that experience as well. So, how do we describe? Um, The change that we observe. Well, what I heard you say in that example was you were using words that are easily recognizable by any person who studied the human body. And that's what I mean by precision. Yes. Plain language. Let's call a spade a shovel, if you will. Let's say Mm -hmm. what what we're doing as far as we understand it. And when we don't understand what the process is, let's not make it up. There's a a term in visceral manipulation, another great technique for working on abdominal adhesions. And I use this a lot with my students where um, uh, somebody who worked uh, extensively in visceral manipulation would say that she was tuning the liver. So that language doesn't make sense to me, because the liver is like a wet, soggy sponge, right? So there's no tuning going on here. I'm formally trained as a musician. A tuning fork is a piece of rigid steel that if you touch it to a surface, it, it, it sounds. There's a sound that happens. So tuning from a musician's standpoint, you, you put a wet, soggy sponge beside a piece of steel, and you just get a bit of a splash, you won't get any sound whatsoever. So the word, this is a borrowing of one, a word from one discipline and one understanding. Yeah. And imposing that word in another discipline. And that is, that's a major problem. Because now, Mm -hmm. the person who is the massage therapist, using a term that is understood in one way by somebody else, can end up being ascribed to certain knowledge and ability that is is very specific oh. it, it doesn't vary any relationship to what we're doing right?
0: right it sounds very pretty though
3: oh it does sound pretty doesn't it yes. it sounds very pretty yes very very musical
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i have another example that kind of ties in with that pan um, and and it's when we've taken words from other languages where it has a totally different context or meaning. And right. one of the classic examples I'm going to pull from is is from my buddy Paul Colmeyer, who who's an RMT uh, massage therapist in Manitoba, and also um, has a background in um, acupuncture as well and cupping. And his one of classic examples of that translation issue is the removal of toxins
3: oh yes that one yes we've heard this a lot
1: yeah which makes us look rather incompetent um uh, we when we use that phrasing and has got slapped around a lot and you know it, it is a word that came from traditional chinese medicine that was translated in an incorrect manner Um, and implies something totally different in our language, which again is physiologically implausible. Mm. And and again, that's another one of those unfortunate things where a word has been taken from someplace else out of context into our world. And it makes us look rather ridiculous, unfortunately.
3: Well, and if massage therapists want to receive any kind of credibility from other professions, that kind of imprecision is precisely the thing that we need to be avoiding. But mm. I, I've been hearing about removing toxins for 30, 30 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I see it often as a claim on certain kinds of uh, skin products, some, some spa services um, that you might get where there are unregulated uh, practitioners performing beauty treatments. And it really takes the uh, legitimacy and the credibility away from a, a, a treatment when we see that kind of thing. We we don't know how we detoxify through the lymphatic system very well. We, I haven't found enough information about this to really feel like I can explain it well. But when somebody claims that... Um, Applying seaweed, for example, in a wrap is going to detoxify. I actually don't disagree with that conceptually, but it's the wrong language hmm. because we don't really know what the process is. So if we're going to pretend to be evidence based, then we gotta not claim something when we don't know that it's actually true. There's an I'm sure there's lots of uh, um, traditional healing techniques that have real validity and have experienced some of them. But I don't think that yeah. we have, have the clarity and the understanding fully about the technique to be able to say for sure and for certain what what the mechanism of, of, of the, the uh, reparation is all about. We, we don't know that stuff yet.
0: So I have a question here that becomes really relevant. I remember school. I remember being taught various techniques. I remember the languaging. I was really into fascial work. I re- remember the up ledger stuff. I remember the lymphatic and all of them have their own lingo and none of yeah. them have any precise science behind them. It seems like, but it's a way of categorizing in your mind, maybe what you're doing as a therapist and it helps you move through the work that you're doing a lot of the time in a way where you can have some sensibility around what you're doing at least in your own head so if we're being taught these language systems by these various groups that are not very responsible with their language, I would say, I don't know any particular technique that really, really has gotten clean in their languaging of how they're working. How do we, as a profession, clean it up? It seems rampantly everywhere. And in, I know students, I have friends who are massage therapy students right now, and they're lapping up All of the information, you know, and it makes sense to them like it made sense to me, but there's no counterbalancing to that saying, hey, we have to be really ethical with how we speak to people because of the neurological looping that can happen and all of these things that pain science is starting to show in terms of how we language things and how people get better and all of that kind of stuff. How do we fix this problem and who becomes the authority on the language?
3: Oh, dear. Oh, Back, back wow. to authority figures, eh? <laughs> I don't know that, that I don't, first of all, language police, that makes me a little uncomfortable because uh, I can imagine that uh, some people might really enjoy that role. But there are some researchers who are, with energy and enthusiasm, debunking some of those myths. There's a, a lecturer here in one of the, Programs in Ontario, uh, Richard Liebert, who has a wonderful evidence-based platform that where he is showing, demonstrating, sharing all the research on particular conditions. It's refreshing because it's an open source, open access reference that he's making available to anybody that's interested because he personally probably feels he should probably be one of the people on this podcast because, you know, he's got lots of opinion about that. Yeah. But I I think this the precision comes from a willingness on the part of teachers, especially to inspire their students to think to open their eyes and think more widely about what may possibly be going on. Because when our teachers suggest to students that it's this way and this is what makes sense and this is what's happening, students, they're black and white. They're going to pick up that information as if it's gold. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: and I think, you know, part of it is just, you know, evolution. You know, uh, we see um, diagnostics evolving, different forms of diagnostics that gives us an opportunity to understand both structure and process Mm -hmm. better. Um, I mean, it was just 2015 where there was medical diagnostics that were sophisticated enough to image the lymphatic vessels in the brain up until then up until then it was a question whether or not there were any lymphatic vessels in the brain and and now there's a now that there's an awareness of that they're looking at um certain neurological conditions like parkinson's or ms and is there a relationship between you know uh under functioning or malfunctioning of lymphatics in the brain and these types of conditions and can that improve care for these types of conditions. I mean, this is ongoing research, right? So part of it is evolution. And I think I think one of the things that concerns me, and this came up um, at the last RMTBC AGM, Bodie Haraldson stood up and said, look, I think it's time for us to really take a look at our education and training and go time for a big overhaul because we've progressed enough in the science area um, that we can at the very least extract these blatant yeah. things, I'll use the breaking up-down star yeah. tissue, for example. At the very least, we can start to extract the really blatantly wrong or incorrect things that we're saying and, and think that we're doing um, and start to modernize, um, you know, our education and training. I mean, Pam and I both uh, were on the uh, project group to update the interjurisdictional uh, practice competencies and performance indicators. And when I looked at a lot of that information, much of it is, hasn't changed significantly from when I did my massage therapy education and training in mm. the 1980s. That's exactly
3: right. And yeah. I'm
1: not saying, And I'm not saying that everything that we've done, you know, historically in our education and training needs to be scrapped. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we have enough science now you know, we, we often, you know, lament about our dearth of research in massage therapy. But, you know, kind of what Nancy and I did with our, with our book was to take a look at just wound healing research mm-hmm. and apply the basic physiology of that to what we're doing, you know, so we can be doing this within our profession with with good, solid research in, you know, complex pain is a perfect example oh, yeah. of up updating our understanding of that and you know we can make pretty reasonable nexus between that and what we're doing with our hands to better support and understand you know what it is we're doing and I think that will help improve the delivery of our care and again I go back to the breaking up and down scar tissue as one of them there are physiologically plausible changes that happen and there is good science to support that. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, part of one of the courses that I, that I teach is, okay, Kathy, you've made this statement about, we're not breaking this stuff up. What is physiologically plausible then? So, you know, I'm doing my best to put my money where my mouth is and come armed with my evidence to say, here are some possible changes that are happening in the tissue Mm -hmm. that can be facilitated by virtue of our Mm -hmm. hands. Uh, Go ahead, uh, Pam.
3: Oh, well, I was just going to follow up on what you were saying, Kathy. I remember that when we were sitting around the table and discussing techniques as they are listed in the uh, interjurisdictional competencies, one of the techniques that just kind of stopped us short was was the term origin and insertion technique, or was it GTO work? Hmm. So GTO work is was well <laughs> understood in massage therapy. Is actually. Origin yeah. and insertion work, but we could not, and we sat around the table looking for references and 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 uh, any evidence. What what is that technique really called? What are you really doing? And I think we landed on origin and insertion technique because it was referenced, whereas GTO was not. Well, anytime yeah. somebody's doing uh, a discussion, either on you know, um, in a paper or doing a presentation, I think it's our responsibility to be representing what we're doing accurately for all the reasons you said. But you just reminded me of that conversation. It literally, it stopped us for, oh, about two hours. We couldn't get forward on the other competencies because that one, we were stuck. We didn't know which term to use. So that's just an example of one of the ways that yeah. precise language can be used in um, even in a regulatory environment. Right.
0: Here's a hypothetical for you. You have a client who comes in and you're working and you've listened to this podcast and you're realizing your language is terrible and you have no idea what to say. And your client <laughs> asks you, what are you doing? And you don't know, you realize you really don't know what you're doing. What do you say to this client? Do you say I have no clue, but trust me. What's the right answer here? Do you have any ideas?
1: Well, I always go with honesty. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm not ex- I'm not exactly sure why this works, but I've been, you know, doing this for many, many years. But you know, for for me, it always comes back to: Are you comfortable with this? You know, meaning to the patient: Are you comfortable with this? Does this feel okay to your body? I mean, that for me is always the stop or go right there. Uh, sure. But my, I I always favor honesty. So oh, yes. sometimes people will ask me a question, you know, what what exactly is happening in there, and I'm like, you know, that's that's a great question. I would love to know the answer to that. I'm gonna I'm, go, I'm going to a conference in in you know such and such time frame, and there might be people there that might be able to shed some light on that. You know, and I'm gonna ask them that question.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I would. I would also break up the question into two parts, Damien, because it's possible that the client wants to know. I've had clients say, you know, put my hands on their body literally for 40 seconds. And then their first question is, what do you feel? Uh (laughs) Right now, I'm just feeling the temperature of your skin. And I'm just feeling, you know, the the quality, the texture of your your, uh, soft tissue. Um, So what I sense from that question is, what can you tell me about my condition? Of course, the client wouldn't say that because Mm -hmm. they often think that we're magic and that we really understand what we're about. (laughs) When in fact, what we're just doing is listening with our hands. But when they ask that, I'll, I'll literally say, I'm not sure what's going on. I just need to feel for a little bit and see what your body's telling me. And that's, it's legitimate. I'm paying attention. It's a palpatory form of assessment, but it, it speaks to that client need to have me a little bit magic in that they, be, some clients actually believe when they feel a pain, I feel their pain. I don't feel their pain. And I find myself educating people about that. No, I actually don't feel that. What I feel is a degree of tension or I feel a hardness or yeah. you know and i'll describe what the joint feels yeah. like or the soft tissue and everything and, and separate their magical thinking i'm not i'm not a healer in the traditional sense i'm putting my hands on them but i'm not trying to be magic and and have them think that i know what i'm you know that i have special
1: knowledge i don't know I- I kind of think of you as a magical pixie my
3: friend but... <laughs> trying trying to avoid the magical thinking where I'm pretending to be something I'm not you know <laughs> but that but so there's that piece but then the other part of this that um I think is is genuine also is that clients want to understand their own bodies so then then yeah. I, then I go down it's almost the same track but I really <laughs> believe that we have a a duty and a responsibility to educate our clients about how the body works without the mystery, uh, because the mystery remains whether I feed it or not. But the actual knowledge that I have about how the body works, my first year students know more about how the body works than most members of the public who've never said anything about the body. So they already have more knowledge. Mm-hmm. If if we share that plain knowledge that we have and and are willing to say, I haven't a clue what this process is, I really don't know. I can tell you what works. I can tell you what my experience is. I can't explain to you why this works because I I really don't know. I think there's power in that. I think it's powerful medicine, Mm. personally.
0: Yeah, I believe in the honesty track as well because there is definitely more potential harm to come from making up diag- or diagnosing or yeah, mm-hmm. saying that the magical thing piece where I you feel your pain or there's even a bit of <laughs> acting that can show up I think where the person's like yeah you definitely can feel your your pain here and and I've had senses as a therapist of this is strange. I don't understand what I'm feeling as I'm touching this person on an emotional level mm-hmm. and on a cognitive level mm-hmm. and those types of things. And yeah. mm-hmm. I think the problems start to show up when we try to explain that to the client where we're saying, uh, you know, you're experiencing something individually and you're trying yes. to relay it to the client in a way that would make sense to them. So you're saying that you're feeling there whatever. Um, yeah. I think that becomes, Quite problematic and and so the honesty where yeah, I really just have no clue what is going on. But in a way where you're you're practiced and you're saying, But I do know this and I do know this. And I think that's very uh for me as a client it would be very helpful to hear that so that I don't it also Destroy some of the power dynamic that can happen. Well,
3: thank you for saying that because that's I I kept I kept wanting to jump in and and I but I wanted you to finish your thought because that's the thing that ties this conversation that we're having to the last podcast. If I encourage people to think that I'm magic, that I have special powers, that I'm so spiritual that. Oh, it's it's a privilege to be in my presence. I am feeding all the transference that a client is quite naturally going to feel yeah. if, they, if they kind of like me as a human being. Then now they think I'm magic. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's a big responsibility, and and I'm constantly um, making efforts to knock the pedestal out from under me because i do not want that responsibility if 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 clients or patients put me on a pedestal or students or whatever it's important for them to recognize that i'm human because i am so human and i am so able to make you know major errors Mm -hmm. and that's why it's important to say that we don't know what we don't know yes Oh, it's so
1: important, and I think you know it, it does completely tie into that. And and you know, I'm sure you've had this experience, both of you, um, in your practice, where people come in and say, "Oh, you know, just do whatever you think is best." Yes. You know, you're the you're, you're, you're the you yeah. the boss, right? And I very, I very quickly will say to my patients, "No, actually, you're the boss in here. This is your bot. This is your body." And, and, yes, I'm, I'm trained to do what I do, and, and hopefully, you know, I have a, you know, a good level of skill and knowledge to be able to facilitate good care for mm-hmm. you. Um, but, but, really, you're the person who, you know, ownership of your body. Yeah. Um, you can convey information to me that I cannot gather. That's right. And this is really important information because you can feel internally what that feels like for you. I, I can't discern that. And I'm really reliant on that information because that helps me significantly in being able to deliver a safe and effective uh, you know, treatment plan for you. And again, that ownership piece is so important because again, that speaks to the power differential. Yeah. You know that, that, that helps to balance that out, which I think is such an extraordinarily important thing in healthcare certainly in our unique environment where we're most often uh, working one-to-one with a patient in a closed room. So anything that we can do to to balance that power differential is such an important important
3: thing. So this is where the silo that uh, we can get into as practitioners um, breaks down because you're discussing the power differential. I was discussing transference. It's the same kind of issue,
2: right? Um,
3: And it feeds directly into whether you're doing orthopedic care or uh, oncology massage, or you're working with uh, complex conditions. The point is, those patients and clients that come to see us, they depend on us to be straightforward with them, to be honest. They want us to tell them what's going on. And if we feed the idea that we're special, we do them harm. That's where the, the 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 harm is in the lack of precise language from my perspective. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. And we've been speaking to the imprecision or the lack of precise language around how we speak about our treatments. But Pam, you brought up as we were going preparing for the show the idea of language as it relates to when people show up so to quote you if you are ready for the treatment then no bad will come of it the old, chest- the old chestnut and so <laughs> oh, yes. yeah and so I uh-huh. think let's uh-huh. speak to that a little bit too because there is uh, a holding of space and uh, a care that comes with language when we first meet people and we bring them into the therapeutic space and I think one of the larger harms can come from not acknowledging the broad spectrum of humans that we encounter and the possibilities of their lives. And how do we fix that problem? Because I know I've been in places where there's a doctor or a nurse and the the speech, the way they speak to me deeply impacts the, the out both the outcome and my my feeling of of uh, being taken care of, and if it's done poorly, it really ruins and actually can be damaging to my both my opinion of them and my my feeling of health and well being. So, yeah, if, right. if you're speaking to this idea of you're ready for the treatment, then no bad will come of it or something like it. How do you, how do we change that type of language? And, mm-hmm. and can you just broaden that? your thoughts on that
3: um, I I feel really really strongly that uh, uh, so you Kathy you had your rant this is my rant <laughs> <laughs> um, in the the art of massage this is the term that we would use to describe a lot of the techniques that people have learned either um, In addition to their massage training and standard programs or there are uh, types of energy work in particular that they might learn where this kind of statement is
2: really, really
3: common. I've heard it a number of times. I think this is probably one of the most unsafe things you can say to somebody if You know, if you're ready for it, everything will come out and uh, no bad can happen. Uh, That's absolutely not true. And that's not borne out in the evidence. The last time that we spoke, we were talking about trauma. And if somebody is told this by a therapist where they have invested the idea that the therapist knows what they're doing and they allow themselves to go down a, a road and experience um a memory or something that is ha- of something that has happened a it's not part of our scope b it should be uh the client's uh, experience that determines what occurs in any one particular treatment and c it's uh not for the therapist to say that that's that's telling a client that the that the that the client's body is has the wisdom. The client's body has the wisdom, but the client's body does not have the cognitive power to to choose when it's safe for for scary things to uh, emerge. It, it it's probably one of the most damaging things that uh, a body worker might say to a client, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, it rings of. Uh that popular notion of the secret where
3: you, yeah,
0: yeah, right. you create okay. everything that comes to you, whether it's bad or good.
3: Oh my goodness. That's, that's maybe like 10%. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I have no control over the rest of it. Right. And who do I think I am? If I'm so powerful that I can allow you to experience those things in front of me, when I generally probably don't have the training to manage the fallout. The the arrogance of that statement just slays me whenever I hear it. It makes me crazy.
0: Well, this is a good segue into a thing that I'm a very strong advocate for in the training of manual therapists and therapists in general, is this idea around becoming both trauma and wellness-informed in terms of trauma. Mm Mm-hmm. I remember my training yes. as a therapist did not hit on any of it and I continue to see it showing up and it becomes really problematic when we encounter people who've had very severe traumas and we have them alone on a table in our rooms uh, with their back showing to us and and then yeah. they re-experience their traumas and we have no idea what to do with it and from our training if we get extra training perhaps we know what to do with it or if we've been trained in other systems perhaps we know what to do with it in mm-hmm. terms of where to point them and how to progress from the point of re-triggering but mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a big issue and then yeah mm-hmm. if we're speaking to this kind of thing like you're talking about pam where where you set things up from the get-go uh, as the full responsibility of the client to have a good outcome based on how they're thinking of it cognitively it's uh yeah it's very harmful
3: (laughs) well it we set clients up to think that everything's okay yeah and everything's not okay especially if there's a trauma underneath whatever is going on for somebody and that is it's not our business to go poking our hands into that yeah no, no, I just, I think I, I think I said it.
2: Yeah. Well, I think leaving people raw well, is, is it, an it, awful yeah. thing to do.
3: That's exactly it. it.
1: Absolutely. And I think this is another area where Pam and I have had, you know, some pretty in-depth conversation around complex care yeah. and, you know, yes. the need for our profession to, to start to consider, do we now need some guidelines for advanced mm. clinical practice um, particularly with these more complex areas of care, like oncology or complex trauma, com- complex pain. Because there's no,
3: there's um, no it, uh, doubt that we see those folks. We're yeah. generalists as a profession, oh. but we see that complex presentation all the time. Right. People-
1: Of course, of course, of course we do. Of course we do. And I think more and more people, I mean, we, you know, massage therapists, we are the most widely used of, if we want to use the term alternative healthcare, we are the most widely used. More people will come to see a massage therapist than pretty much all the other alternative uh, forms of healthcare out there. Mm -hmm. Like, So the potential for us to be working with people with complex issues, is really, really high. Mm -hmm. Because I think more and more people are gravitating towards it's not an either or. I don't have to just go see my physician. I can see my physician and I can also go and see these people as well. We're seeing it more and more in oncology where people are, you know, and even oncologists who are more open to interprofessional collaboration. So, because we are seeing this more and more in the population, I think it is, it is highly important for our profession to take a look at, okay, we've got these certain areas of complex care where we really need to modernize yeah. our education and training and make people aware of how to recognize um, indicators mm-hmm. for people who have complex trauma yeah. and to determine uh, what is safe uh, for us to be be providing care for that patient and how to recommend yeah. additional um, care that might be uh, needed for that individual. Really, oh. really important to us
3: So Damien, I think that sometimes people get nervous when we have conversations about topics such as we have in the last two episodes uh, about topics that relate to the psychodynamic and the therapeutic relationship issues associated with massage therapy. But in my books, they're no different from any other care. It's part of the same puzzle. And unless we grow up as a profession and we get used to having these conversations and owning the potential of our profession to harm so that we actually are frank about about, uh, these kinds of things, we will remain that alternative care. <laughs> but but you know, at oh, the advanced practice guidelines that Kathy mentioned, I couldn't agree more. Um, we, we believe really strongly that massage therapists need to know, how, it's one thing to know how to treat somebody who's uh, torn a ligament in their knee or has no back pain. But the complex presentations that we get as generalists, we absolutely have to be much better at uh, um, addressing the larger um, interpersonal issues that result from imprecise language and fostering trans, transference and that kind of
1: thing. Well, and for lack of a better term, you know, we, we just it is, it is irresponsible as a profession to ignore the big white elephant yeah. in the room. That's right. So you know, so you know, we we've got to take this issue head on yeah. as a profession. Yeah. Um, and, you know if we're talking like from a regulator perspective for example and we're talking about um, patient safety extremely yes. important for us to take this on as a profession and and we have the science now to start to develop these advanced exactly. clinical studies
0: so we're reaching close to the end of our time together I'd like to get your individual thoughts on what the takeaway from this discussion would be and what would be some next steps to improvement
1: well modernize our education and training uh-huh.
0: <laughs> what
1: would, would be one of my i think you know really important and and the precision of the language in that where where we have really you know developed really clear information evidence basis to do that. And, and again, when we talk about evidence informed, I think, again, it's important to remember that there are three pillars mm-hmm. to that. One, one is the science mm-hmm. and research. The, the, the other is the, the patient, what the patient values. Mm-hmm. And then the third pillar to that is also clinical right. expertise. Yeah. So, you know, and, and no one of those should be weighted more heavily than the other. So as we're going forward, for, for evidence basis. We need to pay very close attention to all three of them. And yourself,
3: Pam? Well, I every I echo everything that Kathy's saying. It makes total sense to me. Um, as an educator, I think we are trying to get more clear about uh, our language and not making claims that we uh, for things that we shouldn't be doing or teaching techniques which are... Uh, not precise and can't be um, uh, supported by evidence. Yeah, we don't always have evidence for everything that we try, but we need to understand the processes at work. And if we don't, we need to be clear about that. So I would also echo Kathy's point that I sense that the regulators have a role in this um, issue as a way of directing people um, uh, the future. Um, if the educator, if the regulators are registering massage therapists in their jurisdictions, then perhaps we could have more dialogue about these issues between educators, regulators, and practicing therapists, so that we get some consensus. Right. I recognize that regulators need to work independent of educators, but I, I heartily believe, and this is borne out by nurses and some of the other regulated health professions, that there is a place for educators and regulators to dialogue so that we're all on the same page and giving the right messages. Yes,
1: And I, and I think we have enough, um, you know, we've, we've talked about who, who should be the authoritative mm-hmm. or definitive, definitive voice in this. And, and again, I think we've progressed enough in our profession where we could amass a group of subject matter mm-hmm. experts in particular areas. You know, we, we do have people like Pam Fitch who have the higher levels of education and, and others out there as well that we can we can bring into a collective group because I don't think it should be one province or one yeah. voice. I think we need to draw on our larger body yeah. of really brilliant massage therapy minds out there to bring them together in a group and take a look at, you know, some really critical areas in our education and training that Mm -hmm. could be modernized and, and pull together, you know, the evidence to support how we're going to shift and change our education and training.
3: I'm looking forward to that conversation. (laughs) I have a
0: takeaway that makes sense to me. And I think it would be a useful Thing for some of the listeners or I hope it would be would be this idea of magic think uh, as an individual magical if you are yeah magical thinking if you are interrogating yourself consistently doing a retrospective or a thoughtful introspection mm-hmm. into how you work and, and why you're saying what you're saying and all of those things and you consistently come into that Minds, mindset of interrogating how you speak to your clients, then, or maybe not interrogating is not the right word, but just thoughtfully
3: just reflecting
0: reflecting on what you do and how you do it. Then I think a lot of yeah. the nonsense that could show up would not show up, and and also checking in with your with your colleagues. Don't stay in a yeah. silo. I I was really. Yeah in a silo as a massage therapist and i didn't check in a lot and that's i didn't do many of these things but i did some of the magical thinking sometimes you, it's it's hard to not have your ego come into play and be like i fixed you for sure um,
2: yeah for sure. yeah
0: so that would be my takeaway from today's discussion amongst yeah. other things and i I love having had the time to chat with you both because it's always goes down these really fruitful avenues. I think the listeners will get a lot from this conversation and I'm hoping that we move into another one down the road. Both of these women are amazing resources, so if you do have questions about such things or similar things, that I can't think of anybody better in the field to ask don't necessarily ask me <laughs> i haven't considered myself uh, uh, an authority on any of this i can just speak is my main my main skill set so without further ado i appreciate both of you showing up today uh, have a really very good day and and we'll talk again soon